Right, thanks, Randy. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's turn to Luke 15 in your Bibles. Luke 15, looks like there's some Bibles at the back, so if you need one, just stick your hand up, and uh, a Bible should find its way there shortly. So yeah, my name is Dan. I've uh, been here a few times. Actually, I think the first time that I was booked to speak, it was mid-February, and the Saturday night before, it snowed about a foot and a half. And so we, we made our way through, slipping around the roads, and a few others did as well, and that was great. And then the second time, you, you would have thought it would be safe. It was like mid-November, but there was this like unseasonable dump of snow. Uh, then as well, there was some freezing rain on, and um, so Dan thought he'd play it safe, and so here I am, August 4th. Um, so the weather has cooperated, although I was watching the band of thunderstorms moving through yesterday and thinking we're going to get hailed on or something, or that the power will get knocked out, but um, no, it's been good. It's always uh, so good to be with you, love to come and just uh, sing and, and worship um, and, and pray with you all, so it's just a, a beautiful thing. My wife and I uh, meet at, well, it's the same church as yours, actually, but uh, we, we meet down the road at Rideau Christian Fellowship. And um, she's, she's actually away there. There's a, a missionary report. A good friend of ours is back from Columbia from, for a single week. And the, the kids uh, love this, this girl. And so they went to hear uh, what she was up to, which is a fine choice. Um, this is your chance if you want to go out and hear the report. Yeah, that's right. Randy's out. So, um, so yeah, Luke 15. I, I'm just going to pause, actually, and pray as well, because uh, I know I need the help. And I'm sure you do, too, as uh, the Lord teaches us through this passage of Scripture. So let's, um, let's go to him. Father, we would just bow in your presence uh, right now. We would remind ourselves that we are truly in your presence, that we're uh, two or three are gathered, that you're, you're right here. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we let that sink in, that, that our creator God is here among us, um, that we would also sense your, your holiness, uh, your, your, uh, your greatness, your majesty, but that, that most of all, I pray this morning, that we would be filled with a sense of your love for us. Lord, that, that you love us, that you like us, that you have affection with us, that you want us for your own. Uh, Lord, we are, are taught by this world. We are taught by those who um, should be closest to us at times. Lord, we're taught that we're not lovable, uh, that we aren't loved, uh, that love must be earned. And sometimes we've done things that we wish we hadn't, and we feel like we're now disqualified for love. And we pray that that your love would scream loudly into those areas of lies and of doubts, that we would understand ourselves to be highly valued to our creator God, to the one opinion that matters, Lord, that we um, are, are well loved by you. And may that just transform our own hearts and our own minds this morning as we, we dig into this passage in Luke 15. So, so help us uh, speak through me, and, and most importantly, may you be the, the teacher and instructor of every heart as we unfold these verses. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so Luke 15, probably a familiar passage of scripture. Uh, if, you've, if you've read your, your Bibles, uh, maybe even if you haven't, some of these uh, stories are familiar to you in, in references in popular culture. Um, Jesus here is teaching, and there's no wasted words when we read scripture, right? God was not wanting for an editor to, uh, to knock out sentences that were meaningless. And, and Luke, as he writes this passage, he explains to us that Jesus here is speaking to sinners and to tax collectors on one hand, and then he's speaking to self-righteous scribes and Pharisees on the other hand. That's how this chapter opens, and we'll see, I think, by the end of the third story, 
uh, why that's important that Luke highlights that to us, why he has something to say to each of these groups. And he speaks to these th three groups, um, three stories, three parables about things that are lost. So in each story, something is lost, and it follows a very predictable pattern. So there's a, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son, or lost sons, you could argue. And in each story, we find that something is, is lost, something is missed terribly by somebody. Somebody wants that thing, someone searches for that thing desperately, uh, desperately relentlessly. That thing is found, and then it's celebrated over. There's a celebration, there's a party, there's an outpouring of joy for this thing that was lost and, and was found. And it's funny that um, in, in my circles, at least, or in our culture, we emphasize the lostness in this passage. We say this is the passage about three things that are lost, where we could just as easily emphasize other parts of this story. We could emphasize that this is a story about three things that are searched for passionately, three things that are found three things that are celebrated over. And I want to start there this morning by shifting our thinking a little bit and speaking to you in particular if you are lost this morning. Um, if you feel lost in, in one or another area of your life, if you feel like you're alone or that you've been abandoned or that you've been cast aside or forgotten, I want you to look at this passage and understand that someone misses you terribly, that there is someone who wants you close to his heart, uh, that, that wants you nearby and in his arms, and he's going to search for you um, desperately and relentlessly until he has found you, and then there's going to be a party, a raucous party. It's going to be a celebration and an outpouring of joy. Um, maybe you've sung this song, maybe you haven't, maybe you've heard it, but the, the, the lyrics um, always come back to me. There's no shadow he won't light up, mountain he won't climb up, coming after me, coming after you. There's no uh, lie he won't tear down, a wall he won't kick down, coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, it fights until I'm found, and it leaves the 99 uh, you are being searched for, you are loved, and you are missed, and, and God wants to hold you near to his heart. And I, I believe that he won't quit pursuing you and knocking down lies and climbing up mountains until he has you. The third story is the one that we're going to focus on, and it's a story that highlights the heart of a father for his child, the heart of the father for his children. Um, recently, maybe in the last number of months, I've been asking God uh, a question, and it's a, it's a very specific question, and I've been asking him again and again because it's a sincere question. I, I want him to provide me with the answer, and it's a bit of an unusual question to ask of someone that you're talking to. I don't think you've ever looked at someone face-to-face -face and asked them this question, um, and it's an unusual question to ask of someone with whom you're enjoying a, a, an intimate relationship. But the question is this, my question that I've been asking him sincerely from my heart is, who are you, God? Who, who are you really? What, what are you like? What are you actually like? Because I have heard all kinds of people all of my life saying different things about you and about what you're like and what you do, and they don't all line up. In fact, lots of them are in opposition to each other. And I want to worship and serve and lay down my life for the one true God. 
Not, not a, a God of my own imagination or my own preference or my own opinion. I don't want to worship a God of my own making, so you show me, you tell me what you are like. I want to worship the one true God. And, and the answer that he's been bringing me to time and again in my prayers and in my quiet times, it's the answer that, that Jesus says to Philip in John chapter 14, that he who has seen me has seen the Father. That if we want to know what God is actually like, who he is, we have only to look to Jesus, that he came to reveal the Father to us. That's what he says in his priestly prayer. Just a few chapters later, he says to God, God, I have revealed you to them. I've shown you what they're like. Paul, uh, later in Colossians, he's reflecting on this, and he says, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of God in the flesh. So that if we want to see what God is like, if we want to see how God would react in different situations and what he would say to various people in our lives, we have only to look to what Jesus did in those types of circumstance. What Jesus said to those types of people, who Jesus was. Which brings us to the next question, which is, okay, if Jesus has come to reveal God to us, in what way does Jesus reveal God to us? And there's lots of answers to that question, but I think one stands overwhelmingly above all the others. And it's this, that Jesus reveals God to us as Father. As Father. You think of the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he says, in this way, pray. And this is how you're going to address God in your prayers. Our Father, who is in heaven hallowed be thy name, as Father. And this would have been shocking on some levels to his disciples. Not that they had never heard God referred to as Father before, but up until that point in their history, it was vanishingly rare to hear God referred to as Father. Fifteen times in the Old Testament only. Fifteen times across 39 books do we find God referred to as Father, and in each of those cases, it's a far less personal reference uh, it's re referencing him as being a, a father of nations or the father of Israel. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he turns that completely around in 165 times across the four gospel accounts, across three years of his earthly ministry compared to thousands of years of Jewish history before that, 165 times he refers to God as father to the point that there are modern theologians who say, you know, in light of his usage of that word, it's really not a stretch to say that Father is the Christian word for God. Father is the Christian word for God. And the word that he used, Abba, is actually completely unprecedented in terms of its reference to God. There are no references in any rabbinical teachings, in any Jewish writings, of God being referred to as Abba. But Jesus not only does that, and he not only does it repeatedly, but he invites his followers to do the same thing. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And in Luke 15, he reveals something of the heart of that Father for us. Um, I was sharing this morning with, with Jim um, just that this is, this is an uncomfortable message for me on some levels that um, I'm far more comfortable um, breaking down a specific passage of scripture. Um, I, I just feel safer, I think, when I'm hemmed in by a set number of verses, uh, when I can let the passage kind of speak for itself and, and give us the outline and the teaching points and the application points. Um, 
And, and this isn't going to be that, because this is sort of an overflow of what God has been teaching me over the last months, maybe up to a year. And so it's going to be more thematic, it's going to feel more devotional, more testimonial. So the reason that I brought you to Luke chapter 15 is just so that we have a little bit of an anchor so I don't go too far adrift. So we're, we're going to be referencing Luke 15, but we're going to be using this to just um, scatter sort of throughout the scriptures to pick up these themes of God as Father. So let's, um, let's have a look at this. Let's start reading in Luke chapter 15 at verse 11, right away this story opens on the lost son. And it's a wonderful way, I think, to bring us into this story because most of us, maybe I should just speak for myself, I at least readily identify with this guy. This is a guy that I can relate to in terms of his relationship with the father. So let's read just a few of the verses as we start this conversation. Then he said, that's Jesus, again to the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners and the scribes, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them, his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. How many of us can relate to this lost son? How many of us have related to God our Father in this way? Right? We all sin. John says if we claim that we haven't sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. We all fall. And, and like this son, in spite of the fact that God has only ever been good to us, only ever been faithful to us, only ever given us all that we needed for life and abundant life at that, never gave us any reason to, how often do we dishonor him? How often do we take from God what should be his alone? How often do we allow the distance between us and God to increase gradually, slowly, until we find ourselves in a far country, spiritually speaking, distant from our Father in heaven. And there, in that far country, we, we chase down our own appetites, our own senses of what's going to be good and satisfying for us, and we find ourselves, like this one, hungry. Uh, it says in verse 14 that there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. How many of us have experienced that? Chasing down our own things, our own passions, our own ideas of what will be good, what will taste good, and we find ourselves hungry, famished, emptied of the life that we had with the Father. And how do we respond? How does he respond? I, I would suggest to you that how we respond when we find ourselves in that place, and I think that this can happen at various times in our lives and to various degrees in our lives, but how we respond when we find ourselves there in the distant place, hungry, starving, far from our Father, that it will reveal to us what we believe to be true about the heart of the Father for us. How we respond when we've 
messed up when we've sinned will, will reveal what we understand about the heart of the Father. And so when we look at this young man and we look at his response to being found in that horrible situation, we understand how much he has misapprehended the heart of his Father, hasn't he? I mean, he, he doesn't know yet what's going to happen. That, that scene that's in all of our minds that we sang about in the first song of, of running into his arms and, and coming to his loving embrace, the boy in this story doesn't have that picture. He doesn't know how he will be received. And so what does he do? Well, we see him wallowing in the pigsty. We see him feeling unworthy of being called his father's son, as though being the son of your father ever had anything to do with being worthy or qualified. We see him plotting and scheming of some way to get back into his father's good graces, something that he can do to just earn it back, to get back into his, back into his father's good graces. And so he comes up with this, this speech. He comes up with this plan as though enough groveling uh, enough of a penance, enough of making up for uh, the stupidity of his actions with good works, enough of that might just get him back into his father's good graces. Maybe he can be bought off that way. And how many of us respond to God, our father, in that way also? How many of us, by that attitude, reveal how much we misapprehend the, the, the heart of our father in heaven? If there was one sentence that summarizes what he believes to be true now about his relationship to his father, it would be in verse 19, no longer worthy. No longer worthy. I want to ask you a question. Do you, do you know what it's like to resist love? Do you know what it's like to, to have somebody say, I love you, and right away you just feel this wall come up? between your heart and their words. You just won't let them in. It's just, that's not for you. They're wrong. Maybe you're, you're reading a text. Maybe you're reading an email or a letter and somebody tells you how much you mean to them, how much they treasure you, all the, the reasons that you are valuable to them. And rather than letting those words roll across your heart like warm water on a cold day, you actually flinch physically. You shake it off. It's not for me. That love isn't for me. Maybe you have the opposite problem. I don't know. Maybe someone says, I love you, and you're like, yeah, of course you do. I'm awesome. You know, why, why wouldn't you love me? And I think that would probably come with its own set of challenges, but that hasn't been my experience. I know what it's like to resist love, to not believe it, when somebody tells me that they love me. And what happens with that kind of a mindset is that it, it, it sinks deep down into our DNA until we start to relate to our Father in heaven in the same way, until we start to resist his love in this way. And, and at least for me, there were two major reasons, or at least two reasons that the Lord has shown me why this was happening in my heart. And I'm going to share them with you. Um, and this is where it gets personal and uncomfortable for me, but that's okay because maybe you'll relate to them. And maybe the Lord will, will draw you closer to his love as a result. Two reasons why I tend to resist the love of others. And then by a consequence of that, why I tend to resist the love of my Father in heaven. The first thing is having hidden corners in my heart. Hidden areas in my life. We'll talk about that. And the second one is feeling that love must be earned. That love is something that we earned. And so the first one for me was that I resisted the love of others because I had 
hidden corners in my heart, in my life. They didn't really know me. So how could they say that they loved me? Um, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, we went to church several times a week. Uh, Thursday nights was Bible club. Uh, in the summer was, was Bible camp. Uh, in church, probably three, four times in a week, which I think just means that my sin and rebellion against God was less dramatic than some people's. Um, but that said, the, the sin and rebellion of a Sunday school kid can be just as ugly and disfiguring as anybody's. And so, um, as a kid in grade school, what I remember the most about myself was that I wanted to be loved and accepted and celebrated in every environment I found myself in. Which meant what? That I had to perfect hypocrisy, like a fine art, right? No matter where I was, I had to give the people what they wanted. I had to behave in the way that was accepted, whether that was at church, or at home, or at summer camp, or on my hockey team, or at school, which meant that I was a chameleon. I was a different person in different places. And what I didn't realize as a kid, as a, as a young kid even, was that I was training myself to resist the love of others. Because here's what would happen, is that I would come home, and if my parents told me that they loved me, and I was fortunate to be raised <coughs> in a household where they did, what I would instinctively believe was, look, you don't love me, you love what I show you about myself. You love the version of myself that I allow you to see. You love this piece of me that I'm showing now, but if you knew what I was up to an hour ago, then you wouldn't have been able to stand me. And that's why hypocrisy, that's why secret sins, that's why hidden corners of our heart are so damaging to relationships because as long as you are hiding a piece of, self, of yourself, you will always resist the love of others. You will always believe that what they love is, is a version of yourself that you proje project to them. That if they knew the whole story, man, they would never love you the way that they claim to. That's another reason, as an aside, I think why, why God tells us in, in James chapter 5 to confess our sins to one another, right? We're all comfortable, or, or to various degrees, we're comfortable with confessing our sins to God, but in James 5, we're told to confess our sins to one another. Man, that, that's hard, right? That's, that's awkward. That's painful. So what's that about? Is, is it just because of the pain? Is, it, is this just God trying to make our sin more painful so that we're less likely to do it again? Is this just like a, a master rubbing his puppy's nose in the puddle so that he learns not to mess in the house? Is that what, what God is doing there in, in asking us to confess to each other? I don't think so. If you read the rest of that verse, James 5 talks about how this is so that we may be healed. And so how is it that confessing our sins to a, a trusted confidant or a, a good friend, an accountability partner, how does that bring about healing? I think it does it in a couple of ways. One is quite often it shows you that you're, you weren't alone in your sin, that you weren't the only one struggling with that, 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 that thing. Um, the other thing is that it, it invites help, it invites accountability. But I think that the main thing that it allows us to do is that it allows you to be more fully known and therefore more open to that person's love. Matt Chandler is a preacher at the Village Church. Um, I know a few of you listen to, I listen to him from time to time, and one of the, the, the truisms that he likes to repeat again and again is that you cannot be fully loved until you are fully known and fully loved. You cannot be fully loved till you are fully known and fully loved. So I would challenge you to be fully loved to someone. This works in marriage, by the way. Uh-oh. 
This is getting real, eh? This works in marriage. I mean, if, if there is a, a uh, barrier in your intimacy, in your love with your partner, there are many reasons why that may be. But one of the common reasons is that you are not fully known by your spouse, that there are areas that you're, you're hiding from one another. Uh, for Catherine and I, my wife, um, I became deeply aware of that very early on in our relationship. Um, we were probably like three, four months into dating, and I became acutely aware that I did not want her to fall in love with a false version of myself, with a made-up version of myself. And that if I was asking her to commit her life to me, that I was asking her to commit her life to the whole me. And so we sat down that early and had a difficult conversation. Uh, she was uh, one of four daughters, four, four girls in her family, so maybe mi minimal exposure to, to males and the male mind. And I said to her, look, this is who I am. These are the things that I've struggled with uh, because of who I am, because of how I am. Uh, these are the consequences that it's had in my life. And with God's grace and with your help, I want to leave these things far behind in the rearview mirror. But this is who I am. Are you in? We were engaged not too long after that. Actually, it was a pretty quick dating relationship. But we had this difficult conversation where we confessed things to one another so that we would be fully known and fully loved. And the consequence of that awkward conversation, that difficult conversation, is that I have today in my wife my greatest helper in my battle against sin my greatest accountability partner, and we have a, a close and intimate relationship that when she looks at me in my eyes and says, I love you, I believe her. There's no secrets. She knows it all. So be fully known to one another. Well, what's the condition of this lost son in verse 18 and 19? <clears throat> He's not fully known yet to his father, right? He's in a faraway country. His father knows something of the, the sin and the dishonor that this son has paid to him, but he doesn't know the full extent of his failure. And in that condition, in, in that condition of being unknown fully to his father, he cannot fathom that his father, knowing all, would still love him. Who, who would do that? With all that this guy has done towards his father, who would love him? And so he comes up with this plan to return to his father, to, to grovel enough, to beg enough, to make up for his, his sin with good behavior. Um, I, I learned that lesson with my wife. I learned it more slowly with my father in heaven. What I believed truly in my heart was that you can either be fully known or you can be fully loved, but that the two aren't possible. That, that either somebody doesn't really know me and they can love me, um, or they know me altogether and then they could never love me. And since God, my Father in heaven, knows everything, because he is omniscient, my hope of full intimacy, of love and affection for my Father in heaven, it's just not there. I would have given you the right answer if you'd asked me. But in my heart, this is what I believed. And so the second reason that I resist the love of others and the love of God is this feeling that you have to earn it. And so what do you do when you feel unworthy of your parents' affection because you're a hypocrite? What do you do when you feel unworthy of God's affection because he knows all and, and you can't fathom that he would love you? Well, you, you heap up reasons for them to love you. you. You heap up reasons that you can say, ah, now I've earned it. Look at this thing that I've done. Look at this, this reason, these reasons that I've heaped up. That's mine. I can accept that with a clear conscience. And that's what he does. Uh, this young man fashions this scenario in his head where he goes back to his father, he tells him what happens, and then he's going to serve as a slave. 
Maybe, maybe, you know, once he's, he's heaped up enough of uh, belongings and goods from his hard work that he's made up for the, the 50% that he walked off with and wasted, maybe then he could be considered this man's son again. You can, you can envision this kind of a scenario. If I can just come up with reasons for him to love me. And I can remember this playing out in my life, that as a, as a young child, you know, I, I, if I could come home with a well-marked assignment, if I could come home with a really good report card, if I aced my examination and my parents gushed over me and they said, oh, well done, uh, I, I earned that, that's me. So, so you heap up these things. I remember um, my mom, when I was <clears throat> a teenager, she had to go back to work and uh, we lived on the west side of, of Ottawa, and so she'd be up at like 5 a.m. or earlier, um, getting the day ready, and then, and then going off on a one-hour bus ride into the city, um, work her, her long day, and then come back home, long commute, um, come through the door. You can imagine how she's feeling, just you know, weighed down and exhausted, and still have to deal with all the household things that she was dealing with before going back to work. And so this was her reality, and I remember what would happen if my brother and I came home from school at 3.30, 4 o'clock, and if we just hit the house with the vacuum cleaner and the mops and the, the you know, we'd just polish everything, wash the bathroom, vacuum all three floors, get, you know, dinner, the table set, dinner ready, our lunch is packed, and then just kind of sit down before she arrives and just watch her face as she walks through the door. Like, moms, you know how she felt, right? When she came through the door and, and when this happened to that kind of a scenario and how she would gush over that. And, and man, I earned it. I, I earned her love in that situation. I deserved that part of it. That was rightfully mine. And, and how that seeped into my DNA and how I have gone from sphere to sphere in my life, heaping up impressive reasons for people to think, ah, oh, that guy, and he's, we need him. He, I want him on my team. We'll pick, pick Dan. Heaping up reasons, trophies of my own greatness for people to look at and acknowledge and to say, ah, oh, this guy, he's valuable in spite of the dark corners of his heart. Well, let's look at, at the next son, Luke 15, verse 25. Someone who earned it is, uh, we're going to come back to some of the earlier verses, but here, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near in the house, he heard music and dancing. That's the party we talked about. And then in verse 28, but he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. You see that? These many years I've been serving you. Many years. I've never transgressed. I've kept it all together. He had earned it, he thought. But it was a poison to his relationship with his father. So that was me, these two reasons, these two poison pills to God's grace sunk deep down inside my soul. First, I believed that it wasn't possible to be fully known and to be fully loved. And then the second thing is that I needed to heap up impressive reasons for God to have any affection for me at all. And so I had to quit sinning. Man, I had to knock that out of my life. If God was going to come, come near to me, if he was going to show love to me, man, I just had to quit sinning. And if I did sin, man, I had to beat myself up. I had to grovel a little bit. I had to pay a penance and go to my room and think about what I had done. And then I had to get my act together. I had to do enough good things. I had to serve in my church, maybe do some missions trips, do some impressive things, make sure that every day I checked off my prayer time and my reading time, and then maybe I would enjoy intimacy with my father. Now, just let me take a little time out and say, 
I am not saying here that Christians should not put effort into their pursuit of God. I think we are to put effort into our pursuit of God. Um, Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, was fond of saying that the enemy of grace is not effort, that the enemy of grace is earning. It's the sense that having done these things, now God owes it to me. That is the enemy to God's grace, is the feeling that we have to earn it. We are told to put effort, though. Peter says to make every effort. Paul tells us to put to death the works of the flesh and to to put on the works of the Spirit. We're told to, to strive and to run and to fight the good fight. We are to put effort into our pursuit of God. But this sense of earning it is what's toxic, and it was what was toxic to this son's relationship with his father. Now, I wish that I could tell you that I learned these lessons a long time ago, that long ago I I learned the scandalous truth that you can be fully known and fully loved by God. I wish that I could tell you that uh, long ago I understood that there is no earning attached to the the love of the Father, uh, that there's nothing that I can do that will make him love me or like me anymore, that there's nothing that I can do that will make him like me or love me any less, but I would say that it's only in recent months that I've started to, to apprehend this truth about God's heart for me. Uh, not long ago, I was enjoying a, a quiet time with the Lord um, and, and thinking about his, his sufferings, uh, thinking about Christ uh, on the cross, taking on the weight of our sins and the weight uh, of judgment and, and the pain that he underwent, and my mind automatically reverted to what it always did, which is to say that Jesus was suffering for my sin, for my sin, that, that he was suffering because of my sin, that I had caused the suffering that, that he was undergoing by my sin, and that there was this, this judicial uh, transaction taking place whereby, you know, God's wrath was transferred to him from me, and this is where my mind went, and I was thankful, but then I heard him impressing on my heart to say, not for your sin, although that's true, but for you. I suffered for you. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. I did this not just for your sin. I did this for you, to have you, to be close to you so that where I am, there you, you may be also, that we would always be together so we have this friendship. I did it for you. And I resisted that. But, but he kept, kept coming out, for you, for you, for you. This, we, we do this uh, the, because his body was broken for you and for me. And, and it's always hard to describe what God does in our spirits in those instances because it's, it's, it's a spiritual transaction. All I can say is that it felt like in that moment that God was, was reaching into my heart with his hand. That, that he was reaching in with all of his love and his warmth and his light. And, and, and then I flinched. And I slapped his hand away. And I shocked myself. What what am I doing? The Lord is is trying to to impress you with with his love. He's trying to tear down the walls. He's trying to to pour into your life with all the, the goodness that he is. Why do I resist it? Why is this my reaction to resist the love of God? And he brought me to this passage, to Luke chapter 15. This, this is this biblical, by the way, right? This is how dialogue with God happens, right? Um, Jesus says in, in John 14, verse 26, that, that he was going to send his helper, the Holy Spirit, and that the, the helper would bring to mind all the things that he taught when he was here and that he would teach us. 
So this is, this is biblical. He brought to mind this passage that Jesus taught, and he taught me about it. And what he was impressing to me in that state is that he says, look, you resist my love. You resist my grace and my affection because you are like that, that lost boy in the mud, wallowing in the dirt, not believing that, that if you return to your father that he would truly receive you like a son. And so you're plotting and you're scheming and you're heaping up reasons for him to love you. But this, is, this was the, the, the clincher. He says, the best that you can hope for by, by striving to, to cease being the lost boy in the mud is to be the self-righteous son in the, in the backfield. You're striving to, 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 to get your act together such that you have earned my love. All that you can do is go from being the lost son in the mud to being the self-righteous son in the backfield, and neither of those were qualified to come into the party, not in that state. Neither of them came in. What qualified them for the party? What qualified both of those boys, if they had chosen to, for the ring and the robe and the sandals and the fatted calf and the music and the dancing and the singing and the celebration? What was it? Was it the groveling? Was it the penance? Was it the good works piled up over many years? No, it was the Father. It was the love of the Father that qualified them for that party. It was the Father running out to meet the lost son on the, on the street and wrapping his arms around him. It was the Father interrupting him before he even got through his whole speech that he had planned in the pigsty. Read it through. He doesn't even get through, and this, the Father's like, shut up. Get over here. You're back. You were lost, and I found you. Let's go have a party. What was it that qualified the other boy? It was the father going out into the backfield and saying, come in. Please come in. Come into the party. It was the love of the father. Let's read those verses. In verse 20, and he arose, and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring out the best robe, and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore the father came out and pleaded with him, pleaded with him to come near, not as an act of earning, as an act of grace. Because he has received us, we can be fully known and fully loved by God. No longer slaves, no longer children of, of wrath, but well-loved, free children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. We've been brought into a new family. We have a new father, a new name. We are co-heirs with Christ. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies, witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I am fully known and fully loved by my Father. There is nothing I can do to make him love me or like me anymore. There is nothing I can do to make him like me or love me any less. And, and you know, the crazy thing in all of this is that I, I know this, right? I have, I have four young kids. I know my heart for them. And God has, has sought to instruct me about his heart for me based on my heart for them. Listen, if my kids thought about me the way I sometimes think about my Father in heaven, I would be so grieved. I would be so hurt if they thought that my love was conditional the way that I sometimes believe that God the Father's is conditional for me. And I'm not a better father than our Father in heaven. I'm not a better dad. When my my kids, when they make me a card, it was my birthday last week, so they made me these cards, and they draw these pictures, and they write a message, and they bring it to me. Do you know what I don't do in that moment? I don't take the card and go, are you kidding me? What is this? Look, my, my arms are different sizes. You call this a flower? I mean, it looks like some squiggles with a stick on it. And love, you don't spell love L-U-V, it's L-O-V-E. What's the matter with you? Take that back. No. That's not what I do. I gather my kids to my lap and I gush over this picture that they've drawn for me. I read the message out loud and I thank them and I hug them and I kiss them and we look at the picture and we go over it together. I thank them because I love their feeble, faulty expressions of love. I love their, their scrawled pictures and their misspelled words. When my kids were learning how to walk, uh, when they were first cruising along the, the, the shelves and the couch, and then I, I'd be watching them and loving it, and then they, they would turn and they'd get that glint in their eyes and they would let go, and they would start taking that first step towards me, and then they'd fall flat on their faces. Do you know what I don't do? I don't say, what's wrong with you? You just fall like that? I mean, you're what, 14, 15 months, and you, you, two steps, that's the best you can do? Get up. No, what do I do? I grab the camera, I see if they'll do it again, I, I cheer like they just won the Olympics, I grab them by the hand and we toddle around a little bit again so that they can get their confidence up and then we try it all over again and I reach out my hands and I say, come to me. And I'm not a better father than our father in heaven. Jesus says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We have this sinful, evil nature, but we know how to give good gifts to our children, and we are not better fathers than our Father in heaven. One of the things that, that I've, I've done with all of my kids, um, it, it matters to me for my kids to love me. That, that's important to me. I want my kids to love me. But what I have felt more so burning in my heart is this desire for them to know my love for them. You, you know what I mean? The, the difference there? Um, I I, I I feel, I just can't wait, you know, when they're that, that infant stage, I just can't wait for them to grow up a little bit older so that they can understand just how much my heart burns for them and loves them and wants good things for them. And so I'll, I, I'll do this thing when they're really young and I'll just grab them by the shoulders and I'll get right down on their level and I'll say, look at my eyes, look at my eyes. And they're probably weirded out because they're looking all over the place. I'm like, look at me, 
I love you. Do you know how much I love you? I love you with all my heart. There's nothing that you can ever do to change that. I will always love you. My five-year-old, he's actually six now. He just turned six. But he'll say, yeah, I know. It's like, how do you know? You, you tell us all the time. Like, okay, good. We're, we're getting somewhere. But I want my kids to know my love for them. And I am not a better father than our Father in heaven. He wants you to know that you are loved, that you are treasured, that you are valued. I don't put my kids out of our house when they, when they lie, when they're selfish, when they do something that's wrong. That doesn't disqualify them from our family. I draw them close and we, there, there can be some discipline. There's some explanation as to why this was wrong, why this is the path of death. Why, why they, they have to choose the good things. Because I want them not to be a stronger member of our family. They're in my family whether I, I want it or not. But, but because I want their lives to be full of good things. Because I want them to root out the bad and to choose the abundant life. This is my heart as, an, as a, a faulty, failing father for my kids. I'm not a better father than our father in heaven. So what's his heart for us? Um, I don't know what my application is this morning. I told you I was going to get unhinged. Um, I, think, I think if we were to have an application this morning, it would be this. Um, for us to grow in our apprehension of our Father's loving heart for us, to, for us to truly believe that we are loved by God. If you are wallowing in the mud, then come home to his open arms. If you are pouting in the backfield because of all the ways that you've earned his affection and things just aren't turning out the way that you wanted them to, then come with him. Come with him, uh, not as a matter of earning, but as a matter of love and as a matter of grace. Believe and trust in the Father's heart and love for you and let that be the foundation for your life. Let that be the, 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 the springboard from which you love your family, from which you love your church, from which you love your community, from a place of confidence that you are loved no matter what that you don't need to earn it, that you are fully known and fully loved. That's, that's our application, that's all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can call you that. Lord, that we've been invited by your son to refer to you as our father who is in heaven. Father, I just think about my kids and how anxious they can get in a situation and how that can evaporate in a moment if I would just pick them up and walk through that difficulty or that challenge with them. And Lord, we would remember tonight, today, uh, this morning, that we are in your loving arms, that whatever we face, um, that you are there with us, that you love us, that you love us in spite of our weaknesses and our failures, Lord, that you want to transform us into the beautiful image of Jesus. Thank you for your tremendous love for us. Help us to believe it. Help us to rest in it. Help us to love as you have loved us. In Christ's name, amen.